problem of shoes and clothing. They are such a personal consumption item that people seem to only be able to think about them in terms of their own individual actions. So they think that changing the world or changing the fashion industry just means shopping differently, basically. I understand that. I understand where people are coming from. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you want to change the fashion industry, or indeed, if you want to change the world, at some point, you have to stop thinking about yourself. You have to stop making it your life's work to uh, curate the perfect wardrobe or the perfect shoe collection or the perfect electronic cupboard or whatever it is. Because even if you achieve that and you get the perfect wardrobe, the rest of the world is still going to pot. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In June's episode of The Restart Project podcast, we take a sidestep from our usual focus on technology to take a closer look at another industry that we also need to rethink our relationship with. Fashion. I talk to Tansy Hoskins, a journalist and author who specialises in writing about fashion, production and consumption. Hoskins' first book stitched up the anti-capitalist book of fashion, looked at the fashion industry as a whole and the damage that it does both to the workers involved in the production lines and in a wider sense to the planet that surrounds us all. In this interview, she also discusses her new book, Footwork, which focuses in on the footwear industry and explores the need for us to get urgently political in order to mitigate and change the impact of footwear and these industries that harm their workers and our collective environment. My name is Tansy Hoskins. I'm a journalist and author, and I specialise in covering the clothing, textile and footwear industry. And as part of that, I've written two books. I've written Stitched Up, the anti-capitalist book of fashion. And just recently, I published Footwork, What Your Shoes Are Doing to the World. This is an interesting conversation for me because normally I'm having conversations about technology and I often feel very guilty because I'm not as good with my technology at making that last as I'd like. But talking about shoes, I'm pretty good with shoes, I think, although I guess we'll find out as we go on. Yeah. So what started your interest in doing journalistic work about the fashion industry? And why was this an area that you decided to focus on really heavily in your writing? It kind of came about for two reasons. So the first is that I wanted some answers to the questions that I had. I think that's always a good starting point for writing. Try and figure out what you want to know. And if you can't find it anywhere then investigate it and write it yourself. And that's what happened to me. I have a a political background. I'm hugely interested in in politics and global politics. And I couldn't find anyone applying that kind of thinking to the fashion industry. So this was back in like 2010. So I started doing it myself I I started blogging and then eventually the blog is what turned into my first book 
and then that opened a lot of doors and then I've just been working and, and writing about that industry ever since. It's a, an interesting and complicated area, isn't it, to, to kind of look at because, you know, it's a bit like food. We all we all need food. We all kind of need clothes or at least in most climates we need some clothes sometimes. And yet because we all kind of depend on these things, it kind of makes us not think about them when we purchase them, I, I guess. Would you say that's kind of right? Yeah, it's true. But I also think it kind of skews our thinking about the fashion industry as well. Like Because it's such a personal consumption item, often people end up getting trapped in only thinking about it as a personal item rather than a political item or an object of industry and, and global industry. But the good thing about it, and one of the reasons I find it so interesting to talk about clothing and shoes, is that it is something that everyone can relate to, even if it's just people kind of saying, oh I have no interest or I don't care what I wear and stuff but everybody wear like you say everybody wears something most of the time yeah I mean I I always use shoes as an example when I'm talking about false economy you know if you buy cheap shoes then you have to buy a lot of cheap shoes whereas if you buy expensive shoes they'll last hopefully sometimes mostly a lot longer and that's what I often say in conversation but I mean maybe that's not right anyway you're someone who kind of knows more about that I mean maybe I'm using the wrong example I mean yeah in in theory that that is the case I mean I guess the problem is is it's not a lot of the time it's not a choice that a lot of people have the ability to buy beautifully made shoes that will last so a lot of people end up in shoe zone or Primark and stuff with really limited choice and having that horrible thing of yeah your shoes falling apart after a couple of months wear which is really dispiriting when that happens yeah you're right I mean it's it's definitely an interesting thing where you have to have enough money to save money in the world quite often and and with shoes and clothes yeah I mean as much as I these days I'm doing quite well on those I've definitely been someone who's bought cheap clothes because I've had to in some ways or I felt I've had to it's a complicated one isn't it whether you have to or not in the world we live in so your first book stitched up focused on the fashion industry as a whole whereas footwork as suggested by the name is about the shoe industry. In what key ways does the shoe industry stand out from the rest of the fashion industry? And why did you feel that it needed specific attention? Yeah, well, it's worse than the fashion industry. So the fashion industry has had a pretty strong spotlight on it, particularly since April 2013, when the Rana Plaza factory complex collapsed in Bangladesh, killing over a thousand Bangladeshi garment workers. And whilst there have been fake fires, there have been fatal collapses in the shoe industry. There just hasn't been the same attention. So I, I felt like even though our consciousness about what we were wearing was growing, this consciousness was kind of stopping at our ankles. And we weren't thinking in the same way about the shoes on our feet. And like I say, like when I started looking into it, the standards and the conditions in the footwear industry are a good decade behind the rest of, of the fashion industry. To change things, the first thing you have to do is shine a very bright light into the dark corners. As Ida B. Wells, one of the first investigative journalists who recently won a posthumous Pulitzer Prize in, in America, like said that, you know, you've got you've got to get your torch, you've got to get into the dark places and, and shine a light around because 
without that, you don't have a hope of changing anything. And I guess as a journalist, that's your job to shine that light in some ways. Although it's everybody's job, really, to shine these lights where we see the need for them. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Like, I don't think of journalism or writing as some sort of rarefied profession, I think, down with those kind of divisions. Like you say, this is absolutely a a job for everyone. It's going to take going to take the entire sort of citizenry of the world to make the kind of changes that we need. You often speak about the act of mystifying and the mystification of shoe production, especially in terms of designer trainers, for example. How does this contribute to the devaluation of labour and how we think about the impact of these products? So this is something I find constantly fascinating, how little we know about the way our clothing and and shoes and shoes in particular like how little we know about how they're made and an awful lot of effort goes into preventing us from thinking about their production so you know the advertising and marketing agencies draw down a veil between us and our shoes we never get to see the materials that shoes are made We never get to think about the fact that there's up to 40 different component parts in a shoe. We don't think about the supply chains that get all these different component parts together. We don't think about the factories where they're made and the people that are making them and the freight that brings them to us. So, yeah, there's a complete mystification. And in particular, I think as the shoe industry moved out of places like the United Kingdom and the United States, over to Asia, we have lost that connection with production. Back in the day, each of us would probably have known someone who was working in the shoe industry uh, or in the textile industry. But now that sense of how things are made and even just the fact that things are made, that they don't pop out of thin air in a puff of pink smoke, like that has been mystified. And which I think accounts for an awful lot of the problems that we have. Right. And how can we become better acquainted with the process that goes into making our shoes? And do you think that we need to rewire the way that we think about our clothing? Yes, definitely. Like, I think partly this is a question of political education. That is one of the things I've tried to do in footwork, show what it takes to make shoes, in particular to make 66 million pairs of shoes every single day which is what was happening in 2018 so yeah we have to we have to get beyond the adverts in beyond the sort of perfect images and start thinking about the component parts that go into shoes so start thinking about the cottons the fossil fuels you know the plastics the leather in particular which is one of the most harmful substances that that humans produce the metals the copper, all of these things that are ending up in in our shoes. And in particular, thinking about the people as well that make them and trying to stop the people on those production lines from being invisible. In terms of the geographies of production, in terms of clothes and shoes, and the specific problems that arise for the workers, the people, as you say, that we we need to become more aware of. Increasingly, electronics companies are trying to move production from China and Korea to other countries in Asia that are also known for clothes and shoes. What are the challenges that workers face in Southeast Asian and South Asian countries? I mean, so number one, the wages are exceptionally low. We're not talking about a minimum wage, let alone a living wage. 
for the overwhelming majority of workers in the footwear industry. Also, health and safety is extremely poor. So one of the key substances in shoes, as indeed in electronics, is glue. So if you go into a typical shoe factory, you'll have a headache within five to 10 minutes, just simply from from the fumes. And then there's a, a just a total lack of trade unionism and, and worker organisation within factories. I think it's important to point out like that this isn't a coincidence. These giant multinational corporations like producing in countries where labour rights have been suppressed and continue to be suppressed because it means that wages stay very, very low and conditions stay low. And, you know, they don't have to worry about pesky things like maternity leave or sick pay or holiday pay. You know, that's what it means to be a working person in a a country with with very few rights and, and, and no real trade unions. Wages in China have increased from what they were, you know, 10 years ago. And price is the bottom line for sneaker companies and all shoe companies. So, yeah, so Indonesia, Vietnam, those places, they're becoming more of a popular place for shoe production. Interestingly, there's a lot of shoe production that happens in Eastern Europe. So in the Balkans, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Serbia, the production there is to serve the European market, shoes that are going to Germany and Italy and, and United Kingdom. Mobile phones are a major symbol in terms of e-waste because they have an incredibly short lifespan. And not only are they difficult to repair, but also they have a kind of position as a status symbol, you know, that everyone has. And I, I realise the irony that I'm reading this question from my, my mobile phone as I, as I speak. In your book, you recount your experience at SneakerCon and talk about the almost hysteria that young people have for their designer sneakers. You also mention societal pressure that rears its head in those environments. Do you have any thoughts on the link between these kind of status symbols and youth culture and whether status symbols are necessarily bad for the earth going forwards? Oh, yeah. Well, SneakerCon was crazy. Like, it, I mean, it was... It was the largest gathering of like teenage boys and and young men that I've like I've ever seen uh, in my life, and they were so into so into what they were doing. One of the things about clothing and fashion and shoes is that I mean it is about creativity on the one hand, and I think one of the reason people pay so much attention to it is because it is one of the places for marginalised people where you can actually be a bit creative. You know, you can get up in the morning and you can pay attention to what you wear. You can match the colours. You know, you can make yourself happy for a bit. So there is that creativity and a lot of joy that comes out of fashion. But at the same time, there is also a lot of stigmatising that unfortunately goes with that, which is very much a problem of capitalism. You get these brands and you get these certain types of sneakers within these brands, which get raised up to so, you know, like sort of near mythical status. And, and people will pay stupid amounts of money, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pounds, just in order to have these sneakers because of the status that it conveys upon them. But in, in conveying that status, it also means that other sneakers, other shoes, you know, other foot coverings become stigmatized. 
because they're not this like premier product. Like I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And like I remember when certain types of trainers became cool and other types of trainers became not cool just for like a tiny little logo stitched onto the side of a, a foot covering. Like it's it's completely is really like completely meaningless. Yeah, it stigmatizes people. And this is quite a common conversation I've been having with people since the book came out. The hurt that people still feel about having been teased about their shoes in the playground as a, as a young person, which is completely ridiculous. And I think that still haunts people. And that even as grown-ups, we want to have like a certain type of shoe so that either we stand out or so that we don't stand out. So yeah, so there's a lot, there's a definitely there's a dark side, a very, very dark side to to consumption, particularly when, you know, like a shoe at the end of the day is a pretty generic object. And it's just these kind of like these symbols mostly that are just attached onto foot coverings, which then mean the price can be ramped up. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's it's interesting that you say about the the harm the hurt that can last over from the ways that we're treated at school i mean the environments that we create for our children and the messages and the the ways that they bully each other aren't started by the children are they they're they're started by the society around them maybe the most joy i've had in my life has come through finding clothing that expresses my my gender in ways that i I appreciate and my creativity, as you say. And there are other ways that marginalised groups can kind of approach clothing in that you can buy the best trainers and say, you know, if you haven't got these trainers, then you're not cool. But then the other approach is the kind of punk pr- approach or the grunge approach, because I also grew up in the, the 80s and 90s and, you know, of like repurposing clothing and like making it cool because you 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 alter it and you, you, you know, you put it together in new ways. And that can kind of give the status, I guess, or the self-expression without maybe buying into the industry that is doing so much damage in the same way that it is uh, with sneakers maybe that's an area that offers a bit of hope one of the reasons i stay interested in the fashion industry is thinking about fashion and, and seeing fashion and experiencing fashion kind of in the margins yeah how people do it in the punk scene the hip-hop scene like the queer scene it's like way right. more interesting than anything that goes on in on, in the catwalks and thinking about how fashion might look outside of capitalism as well like if we get rid of like, like get rid of the rules all the stupid rules like pink is for girls and blue is for boys skirts are for girls you know trousers high heels all these like really gendered items like scrapping those rules scrapping rules around class as well like who gets to wear what who has to wear what to go, you know, to like to, to go to work and so on. And unleashing design as well, like allowing everybody to be a designer rather than just like a tiny handful of like white European men, shareholders controlling the, the fashion industry. I think that would be a, a wonderful thing if everybody got that chance at real creativity. And I also think it would, you know, if you design something, then like you invariably you love it more. You know, if you design something and you make something, you are going to look after that item possibly for the rest of your life. You know, totally transform the relationship you have with it as opposed to something you just walked into a a high street shop and bought.
We've been seeing many reports on the environmental impacts of this pandemic, with most finding that despite us being forced to cut back on travel and buying goods, etc., it still isn't enough to make enough of an impact for environmental change that is useful in terms of saving the planet. As part of your triangle of change, you include individual change as an important step, but you also emphasise the fact that the solution to these problems is to demand change on a systemic and a political level. Can you talk us through the triangle approach and what we can do to help to dismantle and change these systems? Just to give you like a very brief summary of what the pandemic has meant for the garment industry and shoe industry and textile industry in particular because I think it's important to mention that it has been absolutely catastrophic and yeah in the beginning it is true like we did you know there were people saying oh you know maybe this is like the world is taking a deep breath and you know this might be the change that we need and stuff but in, in reality like I mean, in terms of the fashion industry, what is happening now is the exact opposite of what we need in terms of a just and green transition. And that is simply because we have seen millions and millions of garment workers laid off going without wages for April and March and potentially May as well. And if you don't have the wages and you're you know, a Bangladeshi garment worker, what it means is, is starvation. So this is in no way any kind of green or just solution for the fashion industry at all. So you're right. One of the things I really wanted to do with footwork was listen to some of the feedback that I got about Stitched Up. People love Stitched Up, but they wanted like a bit more kind of concrete solutions and a bit more of a sense about what they could do. But this really goes back to what I was saying in, in the beginning which is the problem of shoes and clothing, which is they are such a personal consumption item that people seem to only be able to think about them in terms of like their own individual actions. So they think that changing the world or changing the fashion industry just means shopping differently, basically. And like, I, you know, I completely, I understand that. I understand where people are coming from. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you want to change the fashion industry, or indeed, if you want to change the world, at some point, you have to stop thinking about yourself. You know, you have to stop making it your life's work to uh, curate the perfect wardrobe or the perfect shoe collection, you know, or the perfect electronic cupboard or whatever it is, because even if you achieve that and you get the perfect wardrobe, the rest of the world is still going to pot yeah, you know, so what I'm trying to do in footwork is move people on towards thinking about these issues in a political way and, and eventually in a in a systemic way. Yeah. So in terms of like how do you change the footwear industry from a political standpoint? So this to me is going to involve global legislation with teeth. So it is going to mean that we have politicians who pass laws that regulate the footwear industry. So they regulate the materials that go into footwear. They regulate the labor conditions of the people making the footwear. And in particular as well, they they regulate what happens to shoes at the end of life. They regulate the the recycling of footwear. And none of this lies with shopping differently and definitely none of this lies with leaving this kind of change to brands to do by themselves. Because we like we know what happens 
when we leave multinational corporations to do this job themselves. And what happens is that nothing happens and the world slides further and further towards environmental catastrophe. So political change is going to mean regulation on a national level, on a European level, and eventually on a, on a global level. I wanted it to look like a triangle so that I could have individual change at the top, just being the smallest bit of the triangle. And, you know, just to say to people, that is part of it. There's nothing wrong with shopping as ethically as you can, you know, for what you can afford. But then I encourage people to move down the triangle, if you like. So then to move on to political change, which we've just talked about. But then at the bottom and forming the base of the triangle is what I have labelled systemic change. So this is by far the biggest, it's the biggest block of the triangle. It's the bit that we speak about the least, although since the financial crash of 2008, and now I think since the pandemic, conversations about capitalism are going to become more frequent and, and more and more relevant, I think, to people's lives. So this is the point where we start to encounter some of the more intransigent problems of capitalism. So it's here that we have to tackle the fact that garment workers are 80% women from the global south. So that's about feminism, it's about anti-racism, it's about anti-imperialism, it's about anti-capitalism, and then facing those problems of class divide and poverty in our own societies as well. Because I don't think we can change things unless we tackle stuff here as well so yeah so individual change at the top political change in the middle and then confronting the system of capitalism and moving towards system change as the third point the sad thing is the system is going to change one way or another scientists have said that we've got 11 years now to prevent runaway climate change and so either we have a change we positively change and we make sure that the world and the global system can provide for everybody, or it changes under our feet, and we all end up scavenging on rubbish dumps and cowering, like, like cowering in caves and stuff, which is yeah, not what we want. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, in a way, it's heartening that more and more we can talk about these systems a bit more freely now than it feels like we could have in the past. But it's not exactly heartening because the reason that people are more open to having these conversations is that things are worse. <laughs> so it's it's a complicated one, isn't it? But but certainly, you know, 20 years ago, everybody often looked at me like I was, you know, a strange person when I said capitalism or climate change or any of these things. Now, everybody's talking about them. Whether the talking ends up in action, those kind of questions are are a bit more cloudy. And then, as you say, with the pandemic, even more of these conversations are suddenly thrust into the into the spotlight. But again, we'll see how they're actually acted on as we go forward. I feel like, like people put up with an awful lot when they feel like they're getting some kind of benefit. And I think, like at the moment, like what are the benefits of capitalism? So I, I feel like more and more people will be open to these kinds of questions. You know, we're sliding into a recession slash depression, and it's going to become more and more apparent that capitalism is a system that can't feed people equally. It doesn't house people equally. It doesn't give health care equally. It doesn't clothe people equally and so on. And, and eventually, you know, these movements, I think, will be built. Because that's what you have to do eventually to construct power blocks. This pandemic 
seems to be redrawing or revealing in a very stark way the inequalities that exist in this country and throughout the world in a way that people can't ignore the way that that working people are being treated you know if they're a blue collar worker or a white collar worker or a billionaire at the moment it's just it's just incredibly stark and and incredibly depressing yeah <laughs> yes it is it's funny as well like the one thing i was feeling smug about at the beginning of this conversation was that individually i'm doing all right in terms of the clothing industry or the shoe industry and it's like that is important to do but at the same time as you say there's other much more important elements like the the systemic and the political one but the individual approach does matter too and often you get people shrugging their shoulders and saying well there is no ethical consumerism under capitalism and they may very well be right but often that means that they don't even bother trying which I think is a mistake because obviously we may not be able to be a pure ethical being, but we can improve things to a certain extent by our individual actions. And so how have your individual actions and approaches to shopping and your lifestyle as a whole changed as a result of doing this research and finding these things out? It has meant a change in my in my shopping habits. I feel no compulsion to line the pockets of men whose fortunes are $15 billion or $60 billion or $90 billion. So I've no interest really in most high street shops, whether that's for clothes or shoes. I simply feel like I don't want to be part of that system. I guess also, you know, it's meant that like most people, most of my friends and stuff don't want to talk to me about (laughs) fashion on shoes anymore um yeah no one wants to take me shopping or tell me about what they've bought recently but yeah I mean I think you just you take responsibility for your life you do the best you can within the confines of what you're earning each month so yeah there's not there's nothing wrong with making the most ethical decisions that you can but I just think it's it's just so important not to stop there like not to get stuck in that place right I found since I started doing this podcast for the Restart Project, you know, five or six years ago, my attitude and the way that I consume technology has absolutely changed and probably not always changed enough. But like you say, I've done what I can within the within the confines of my situation and kind of a bit like you, I've become less popular to friends in terms of talking about technology. And I'm sure lots of folk in, in the Restart Project and the people who volunteer at Restart Parties will have that experience too. Of The more they know, the less fun they are for their friends to talk to about their about their purchases and their, their new shiny, shiny technology. And I guess it's the same with sparkly, sparkly clothes. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But I would say that like uh, the alternative is better definitely like I would rather I would rather be conscious and I'd rather know what's going on and like life is definitely better when you know what's going on right like when you have more knowledge about the world and when you understand it right I wouldn't go back to to a state of ignorance part of that is like I'm sure it's the same for you is the connections that you can make through that work like not only with kind of other like activists and people making change but also with global society as well so both the sort of the people who are doing the same things as you around the world, but also the people you're working in solidarity with. You know, for me, trade union leaders and activists in the global south, and then also like some of the environmental work that I do, just that sense of like connecting with something bigger than just like my life is yeah. is really like is really powerful. And you know, and as part of the 
the shoe research that I did you know I got way more in like way more interested and invested in the idea of like animal rights as well simply because I was so horrified by the leather industry and right. you know I'm going visiting an abattoir and stuff so but that connection that you're linked with something bigger and you're building those bridges with something bigger I think is way better than any like shopping thrill don't you agree like it's just way more important and substantial and absolutely I, I fully agree and also th- I mean that's the other thing as well like we're we're slightly joking when we're saying our friends don't like to talk about those things with us I mean they they probably don't but the the act of them not wanting to to so- talk to us so much about those areas means they're starting to think they're starting to think about their purchases so the cycle will go on and maybe more and more people's views on it will change and they'll all be making a little bit more of an ethical decision you know as we go forwards it's hard to expect individuals to have these complete and utter total changes whereas i think it's it's a bit more reasonable to expect organizations to change in in a way than than those of us that are kind of trapped within the whims of, of of these systems it's a bit harder for us to change in some ways i think than the people at the top who have the who have more resources and more more options and and can do very small things at their level that will make very big differences yeah totally from each according to their ability and to each according to their need excellent i'm, I'm glad to be getting some marxism on the on the restart project podcast at Restart, we promote reuse and repair as a key point in our messaging. And these values can be traced through to the fashion industry in the mainstreaming of reuse, secondhand and brands which prioritise sustainability in their image. What we see in the electronics marketplace, however, for example, in the case of smartphones, is certain major companies having such dominance in the market that their lack of sustainability may not influence the average consumer to look into other options. Does that hold true for trainers too, despite the presence of trainer refurbishers and stuff like that? So trainers are like the dominant form of footwear, really, at the moment, and they're just not built to be repaired. There's certain cobblers who will repair your trainers, but it's like to cost as much as buying a new pair of trainers this is something that absolutely has to change within the footwear industry is that we can't like we literally the planet cannot deal with us just producing this number of shoes 66 million every day and not having them be repairable clothes you can you can repair yourself shoes is more complicated like they are a more complicated object they require a bit more specialist knowledge and specialist tools to fix them. So yeah, it is more difficult. And I think this needs to be something that is the responsibility of the people producing the shoes, of the brands who make the shoes. If if they were responsible for the repair, if they were responsible for the shoes at the end of life, and there were very strict guidelines, not saying they should just be able to incinerate them all, but if they were responsible for the responsible recycling of those shoes, I think we would see things change very, very quickly. Because at the moment, you know, 90% of all footwear is not recycled. And when you think about the fact that we're making 66 million a day, this is a serious environmental problem that we are building for ourselves. The Restart Project focuses on a reduction of and an awareness of e-waste. We're currently paying close attention to the ways that the electronic supply chains on all levels of the manufacturing process are being impacted by the pandemic. This has also been the focus of fast fashion activists. Can this be a watershed moment? And what do you see happening in the coming years? Well, 
predictions <laughs> predictions always come back to bite, right? But um, there seems to be a spectrum of expectation for what will happen next in the textile clothing and footwear industry. On the one hand, you have some people who are very optimistic, who believe that this can be a moment of change. It's a moment of self-reflection for designers and brands and consumers, and that we will all emerge into a better and greener world. I think I am towards the other end of the spectrum. I don't feel optimistic unless something changes, I suppose, is, is, you know, is, is how I would put it. I think we are likely to see an acceleration of a lot of the worst practices of the fashion industry. There will be a drive from these enormous multinational corporations in order to regain the profits that they have lost in the last few months. I think this will put an additional burden and an additional pressure on workers and factories in the global south. So workers and factories who have been really badly let down by brands, orders have been cancelled, brands are refusing to pay for things that have already been made. Millions of workers have been left without wages and left hungry. I think we'll see an acceleration of the labour issues. I think we'll also see an acceleration of environmental problems as well. I think there will be a drive from fashion brands to say that regrouping and remaking their profits is more important than environmental regulations. So I think there'll be a great deal of pressure upon governments and civil society to sideline any kind of like environmental regulation around the fashion industry. I think what can be a watershed moment is if we all get together and literally just say like enough is enough and that we're not willing to go back to an even worse situation than we had before. You know, if there's one thing that the COVID-19 crisis shows us is that capitalism is not working it wasn't working before. It's driven us to the point where in 11 years we'll be in, involved in runaway climate change. It's not working for millions of garment workers. It's not fulfilling for millions of people at the consumption end of the, the fashion supply chain. So I think, yeah, now now is a very important moment and we must resist. Yeah. I mean, do you have any suggestions on on ways that we can go about resisting collectively the garment industry? Yeah, I mean, one, so one of the things I explore at the end of Footwork is what was termed the anti-globalisation movement of the late 90s, which was really, really gathering steam. And I think that needs to be our model. So, you know, going back to the days of the big demonstrations at the World Trade Organization you know, the, and the battle for Seattle, where we were starting to link issues together. So I don't think for a minute that we can change the, the fashion industry in isolation, nor, right. you know, nor the electronics industry. You know, we can make partial gains. But yeah, we need to link all these issues together. So the, the questions of housing justice, of uh, environmental justice, of food justice, clothing justice, electronic justice, and, and really start working on a global scale and linking up people at every point in the supply chain, listening to people in the global south about what they need and how we can best work in solidarity with them. But I, you know, I really think at the end of the day, it is about building a global movement which can challenge both individual multinational corporations and the system as a whole. One of the tragedies of 9-11 and the, you know, the attacks on the, the Twin Towers was that it put an end to the, the anti-globalisation movement. 
you know, everybody suddenly had to go and start campaigning against the wars on Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And the world was divided between Muslims and non-Muslims. So, you know, they tried to divide us along those lines. So, you know, a lot of work had to go in, into proving that that was all false as well. The climate movement like, is becoming more and more global. All of these movements, you know, they have to become global and we have to work in solidarity with each other. Talking with Tanzi, it was really clear just how many parallels there are between fashion and footwear and electronics. In the case of all of these items, there are many things standing in the way of us understanding and changing what they are and how they're made. Housing and work and being able to afford things are issues that have suddenly been thrust into many people's lives during this pandemic. People who weren't aware of these issues before now have a greater understanding of what it is to be precarious. Within these realisations, there is a lot of hope as well as despair. People are starting to see the systems around them and how different issues link up with each other to form a complex problem, which, for the sake of all of us, we need to work out how to solve. Tansy's work is all about connecting the dots. From the issues of consumers in the global north to the lack of voice and rights of workers in the global south, she weaves these threads together like a cobbler repairing a shoe, and highlights the need for us to understand that fighting for more repairable products for all of us requires many different movements and causes to learn from each other, listen to each other, and come together and work for a more equal, more sustainable, and a more caring world, changing these global systems into ones that sustain us, nourish us, and take us forwards. Since we are in a moment when things have had to change, let's try and make sure that they change in the ways that are needed. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.